Hey Jim, good to be back sitting alongside you um, on a Thursday, not our normal day to be recording a podcast, but uh, uh, that's the, the way things are these days, it's all a bit um, a bit interchangeable week to week. But just as we kick off, um, since I last saw you, we've had a US presidential election. Did you watch that? I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Uh, I sat up all night sitting in front of two screens <laughs> watching US news channels and uh, monitoring social media. Um, I was eating my dinner at 3.30am. Uh, it was absolutely tremendous fun. I think I got to bed at 9am. That is incredibly impressive. But to be fair, I stayed up till 630 um, and I that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I didn't plan on that, but it's nothing. It's not the same league as as nine a.m. That is that is quite epic. What did you What did you make of the outcome in the end? Well, I think if the Republicans maintain control of the Senate, I think it's going to be a pretty good result because nothing much is going to happen for the next four years. And to be honest, I think a bit of stalemate is probably what America needs just now. I mean, the big battles in U.S. politics for the next few years aren't going to be between the parties. The battles are going to be within each party. So the question for the Republicans is whether or not Trump will tear the party apart. Uh, and the uh, well, as far as the Democrats are concerned, I mean, they're gearing up for a big internal bond fight between the old-fashioned liberals and the, the radicals of the progressive left, you know, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and people like that. So the winner of the 2024 election, I, I think, will be the party which better handles its internal power struggle. So that's my political analysis for well, free. We could, we could we could do a full podcast on that, I'm sure. Although I'm not sure I want to, to be honest, yeah. given the uh, level of controversy around it. But um, today was actually meant to be our last episode of season two. But what we've done is uh, we've decided to insert an extra episode this week on the topic of euthanasia and assisted suicide. And one of the reasons for that is um, because of a bill currently making its way through the Irish Parliament. There's a private member's bill um, which is called Dying with Dignity 2020, and it could have significant consequences for people living in both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. But before we get into that politics, can we first think about what we mean when we say euthanasia? What what does that actually mean? Yeah, well, look, there's a bit of technology or a bit of uh, technical language that we need to get our heads around here. A couple of three-letter acronyms uh, that are used in the debate People talk about PAS and PAE, and PAS stands for Physician Assisted Suicide. Okay, so in that scheme, someone who wants to die is given a lethal dosage of medicine in tablet form. So it's the patient who makes the choice to swallow the tablets, and uh, the physician is merely assisting a suicide in that case. Okay, so that's PAS. The second term is PAE, and that stands for Physician Administered Euthanasia. In that scenario, the physician hooks the patient up to a drip that contains a lethal cocktail of drugs, and it is the doctor who ends the life of another person. In technical language, PAE involves active uh, parenteral killing. So those are the two methods of dying involved, physician-assisted suicide and physician-administered euthanasia. Now, just quickly, there's one important point to note about those two methods. PAS fails quite often. The tablets that a patient swallows are, as you can imagine, unimaginably strong. So sometimes the patient vomits them up. So in countries where both PAS and PAE are offered, there's always a move away from assisted suicide and towards euthanasia. Yeah, and it it sounds like really shocking when you describe how these procedures work in practice. Uh, I spent my morning uh, watching videos of people kind of going through this this process of pursuing euthanasia and it, it, to be honest, it made me just feel really miserable. 
Um, but but some of the cases of these individuals were just so hard to watch. Um, it was just so sad to see people in such kind of dire straits. Um, and an example of that might be someone in, in the last stages of motor neuron disease or, or an equivalent uh, terrible illness. Um, and you, you can kind of begin to see when you see someone in that much pain, almost tortured, um, you begin to see why someone might suggest that euthanasia is almost a humane and sympathetic course of action. Yes, uh, MND is is a really horrible disease. Um, that at the moment is an incurable. Uh, and so basically, the, the messages from the motor neurons gradually stop reaching the muscles, and that leads the muscles to weaken and stiffen and waste. So MND can affect how you walk and talk and eat and drink and, and breathe. And in the end, the patient dies from respiratory failure. Uh, it's heartrending, really. I mean, anyone who wants to think seriously about euthanasia should be prepared to talk with people uh, who have these sorts of conditions. I mean, to be personal for a moment, my own mother spent years in the last stage of Alzheimer's disease. She was unable to move or communicate. Now, by God's grace, she was cared for by some wonderful medical staff, but it was distressing for the family to watch. And as a result, Alzheimer's disease is my greatest fear. I mean, I, I have no fear of dying. I mean, pneumonia would be a good way to go, I always think. But I can remember going for a walk with a medic who, who I was friend, friendly with at the time. And I argued passionately that death was a process. And so something like PAE was the most humane and sane course of action. So back at that time, I argued that a life wasn't being ended. The process of dying was simply being accelerated. Now, I no longer believe that, but I can still feel its emotional weight. And we also need to remember that the debate also affects young people. I know a married couple who, who raised the most seriously disabled child I have ever encountered until he died at the age of 14. The boy was, was quite heavy, but he had to be fed and washed like a baby. Uh, he couldn't communicate. He could react to the color red, and, and that was about it. Now, I'm lost in admiration for the love and resilience they showed over many difficult years. So in the course of this conversation, Ollie, I'm going to be arguing against both PAS and PAE. But I have to begin with the admission that emotionally, my instinct was to be sympathetic in the most difficult of cases. And I'm acutely aware that the Lord might judge me for what I'm about to say by calling me to suffer something like Alzheimer's disease myself. This topic actually fits really well with the overall theme of season two, um, which has been really focusing on the future challenges that we're going to face as Christians. And euthanasia is going to be a massive issue for us going forward, particularly in a decade's time, even in this country. Yeah, it's going to be huge. In fact, I think it's going to be one of the top five strategic challenges Christians face in the 2030s. People are living much longer than in the past. But in reality, the years of wellness have not increased all that much. So middle-aged couples who have just finished raising their kids now have to turn around and start caring for their aging parents. At a societal level, the costs of care for the elderly are spiralling out of control. I mean, the percentage of people in the West who are fit enough to work and generate wealth is falling steadily. So there's going to be huge pressure for euthanasia to cut costs and free middle-aged people up from the burden of care. Let's think specifically about this bill that's currently working its way through the Irish Parliament. It's currently at the committee stage. But there is a theoretical chance that it could be passed by January, and it allows for both PAS and PAE. And it's striking, actually, how short this spill is. As I read through, I was amazed just at how few pages there actually were. The, equiv the equivalent legislation in Australia only covered assisted suicide, but by contrast, it's 160 pages long. The Irish bill is just 10 pages long. 
Um, and there are two surprising things about this bill. Firstly, there are no effective delimiters in the legislation. So the phrase terminally ill is defined without any prognostication, and it therefore encompasses all sorts of incurable conditions. Think about type 1 diabetes or mental health conditions. The bill talks about settled intention without providing any definition of that term or any criteria to evaluate it. In fact, there are no criteria to analyze the question, why does the person want this? The bill states that only two doctors, who could in fact be junior doctors, will assess and conduct the assisted suicide or euthanasia, and one of them can be the doctor who diagnoses the terminal illness itself. The procedure can be conducted two weeks after assessment by the two doctors. Yeah, in fact, under some pretty vaguely defined terms, that period can be reduced to six days. Yeah, so so, so I think the point in, in all of that is to say that there are massive holes in this legislation. I mean, it's certainly not um, robust, uh, and it's something that, um, that, that we should really be concerned about, just how uh, kind of limited it actually is in, in its scope. The other surprising thing is that PAS and PAE are actually offered to people on the whole island of Ireland. So it's being offered to people in Northern Ireland as well as those in the Republic. So for example, if someone in County Antrim went to their own GP and and asked for their medical notes, they could then travel down the motorway to Dublin and a couple of junior doctors could authorise the procedure and within two weeks that person could be dead without anyone in the UK jurisdiction knowing anything about it, which to me seems really quite shocking. Do you think that that this would be allowed by the UK government or by Stormont? Well, when I first heard about this, my my initial reaction was to ask our local politicians to kick up a fuss. But having thought about it a little bit more, it struck me that an action like that might be exactly what the supporters of the bill would like. I mean, politicians have a, a form of intelligence that we might call low animal cunning. I mean, they can be incredibly Machiavellian at times. And so we have to be careful not to walk into a trap. Um, what might that trap be? Well, imagine that the DUP became very vocal about this. Uh, that would immediately frame the debate as a unionist versus nationalist fight, which would be enormously helpful to those who support the bill. But uh, maybe the deeper issue is that this private member's bill is what politicians call a stalking horse. In other words, its job is not to succeed itself, but to open up the race for a horse from the same stable. Now, if that theory is right, it would work something like this. Opponents of the current bill will become so alarmed by the rushed timescale um, that we will emphasize the arguments you've just made a minute or two ago about the fact there are no delimiters. You could drive a coach and horses through the bill as it stands. But think what that would do. The conversation would focus completely on the need for amendments to fix the most egregious errors in the bill. But by getting sucked into that, what we might call pragmatic conversation, we would inadvertently have given up on the principle that we don't have the right to take another human being's life. Now, if the Irish government then kill the private member's bill and replace it with a more palatable version of their own in a couple of years' time, opponents of euthanasia, unless they're very careful, might have already compromised on the core issue um, that euthanasia is never morally acceptable. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And almost we'd be uh, we'd be having the debate too far on down the track already, if you like. That's right. One of the best arguments against euthanasia is to look at what actually happens in the countries that have legalized it. So the three countries with the most advanced euthanasia capability are the Netherlands, Belgium and Canada. Could you just tell us a little bit about what happens in those countries? Well, the first point is that its usage explodes exponentially. 
in countries which have legalized euthanasia or assisted suicide for 10 years or more, the number of people ending their lives has increased by an average of 661%. That is astonishing. So the first point is that its usage explodes exponentially. The second point emerges by asking why people are choosing euthanasia. Most people don't travel this path on the basis of severe pain. I mean, let's take Oregon as an example. In, in 2019, 59% of people who died in this way said that they felt they were a burden on family, friends, and caregivers. Now just think about that. Three out of five people allowed themselves to be killed because they felt a burden. Yeah, I just think that's absolutely tragic. Um, yeah, really heartbreaking to hear those kind of statistics. And you mentioned earlier the societal pressures and the whole issue of cost. Well, in California, where assisted suicide was introduced back in 2016, there's evidence of insurance companies actually refusing to cover chemotherapy drugs for cancer patients, but instead being prepared to cover the cost of the drugs used for assisted suicide. Yeah. Now, the third point uh, is to look at how the scope has widened in these countries. Um, so in April of this year, in April 2020, the Dutch Supreme Court expanded the ground for euthanasia for people who have dementia. Uh, and even when a patient with dementia does not give consent and the doctor euthanizes her, the doctor will not be prosecuted. And that's not a theoretical point. In 2016, a woman with dementia who revoked her consent to be euthanized had to be held down by her family whilst the doctor ended her life. And a Dutch court approved the practice and acquitted the doctor of any wrongdoing. Now, this year, the Dutch courts have decided to go even further. It's proposing to allow people over 75 to be euthanized just because they've grown tired of life. The scope uh, increases in another way. Uh, the Netherlands Minister of Health, uh, Hugo de Jonge, announced very recently that the Dutch government plans to extend euthanasia to children after um, the March 2021 20, election. At the moment, children between the ages of 12 and 15 can request euthanasia, but must first have permission of their parents. Teenagers of 16 or 17 are required to inform their parents if they request euthanasia. But this new legislation that's going to come in in a year's time will extend euthanasia to children between the ages of 1 and 12. I mean, that's scary stuff. And as you say, Jim, the scope just keeps getting wider and wider. Um, in January 2018, a 29-year-old Dutch woman called Aurelia Brewers told BBC News about her situation and this is what she said. She said, I'm 29 years old and I've chosen to be voluntarily euthanized. I've chosen this because I have a lot of mental health issues and I, you know, this morning I spent some time looking into this case and I went on her Instagram and it's just so tragic to see um, to, to see her life and you know, to see her talking so openly about the fact that she's going to be euthanized and almost rejoicing in that fact and I just thought there must be uh, some other way, some other better alternative to this. It, it was really heartbreaking just to see uh, that situation and how it unfolded and, and ultimately led to the point where she she did, in fact, uh, take, take her own life or was assisted in doing so. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, we've thought about the, the exponential explosion in usage and the, the fact that people are mostly choosing it now because they feel a burden and this huge increase in scope. But the final point I want to make is that Euthanasia is destroying the trust between doctors and patients. Doctors deliberately killing their patients has been anathema in the profession since uh, Hippocrates. And it's interesting that medics involved in palliative care are almost universally opposed to euthanasia. 
I mean, the Association of Palliative Medicine of Great Britain and Ireland, they conducted a survey in 2015 and 92% opposed PAS and PA. And you can see why. Once doctors become implicated in the killing of elderly patients, I mean, just think of the fear that will pervade hospices and care for the elderly wards in hospitals when somebody approaches a patient with a syringe. I read a letter last night written by a woman. and She, she took her, her seriously ill husband to a hospital in Oregon. She collapsed, exhausted in the chair, thankful to have got into a place where he would receive help. But then, to her horror, she overheard the doctor make a sales pitch for assisted suicide. Think of what it will spare your wife, the doctor said. You need to think about her. And then read another letter. It was this time it was from a doctor practicing in Oregon. And he had looked after a man for over a decade who who had developed uh, melanoma, a skin cancer. And one day, one of the doctor's colleagues came into his room and asked him to be the second physician needed to sign off on PAS, just because the patient had become depressed. So euthanasia is going to destroy the trust between doctors and patients. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the antithesis of of what a doctor is supposed to do. So you started off being quite sympathetic to the plight to the plight of people who might desire euthanasia, but the sympathy we might feel for for terribly sad cases is in tension with this analysis you've given of how a society that embraces euthanasia can then slide into some of these horrific things that we've seen in the in the Netherlands, for example, where we also have mobile euthanasia vans that drive around offering the ability to end people's lives in their own homes just because they've got tired of life. And I guess someone might ask themselves, why can't we have a law that is only for the really terrible cases like MND? Why does there have to be this slide down a slippery slope? Yeah, this is actually the key question. And it raises the big theological contribution where Christians uh, that, that Christians can make to the debate. Um, now, <laughs> I'm going to use an analogy that was told to me by a palliative care consultant um, earlier this week. So give me a moment to head off on what seems like an insane tangent, okay? <laughs> I mean, we often talk about uh, drawing a line in the sand. And that term comes from the historical moment when Britain and France carved up the Middle East, creating countries like Iraq and Syria. And the boundaries between those new countries, actually, if you look at them on a map, they're fairly arbitrary. I mean, nothing more than a line in the sand. Now, it's helpful to contrast arbitrary man-made boundaries like that to the much more stable boundaries that align with nature. So think of the boundaries between nations that run along uh, mountain ranges or uh, that use rivers or seas or oceans as natural points of division. And there's a pretty compelling historical argument that boundaries between nations that align with natural formations are much more stable than lines drawn in the sand. Now, that elaborate metaphor can helpfully be applied to how law operates in societies. Uh, When civil law aligns with natural law, then it will endure. So we can think of natural boundaries like not killing another human being or the institution of marriage. But when a society ignores natural law and then just draws an arbitrary line in the sand, it can never endure. So in this context, once you step away from the natural law that a human life should not be terminated, it is inevitable that the line in the sand will keep moving. Um, There's a Dutch author called Gerbert von Lohenen. Uh, I've just mangled the man's name, but (laughs) he makes this point explicitly. He says, Making euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide legal started a development we did not foresee. The old limit, thou shalt not kill, was abandoned, and a new limit is yet to be found. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense, Jim. That's a really helpful analogy. 
This coming Sunday, you're preaching on the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, which deals with old age and death and is incredibly relevant for this conversation we're having. The chapter contains that famous poem that records how a human body gradually breaks down with age. What would you say is is the Christian way to handle old age and death? Um, these are incredibly sensitive uh, issues. Um, at the most basic level, Christianity does not determine the value of a human being by how well their body works. Personhood is not defined by functional capability. In Christian thought, personhood is value because it is a gift bestowed by our Creator. So an atheist might look at a, an elderly patient lying almost comatose on a hospital bed, unable to communicate or perform basic functions. The atheist might think that the patient has no real moral value. But the Bible tells us that even though the person's old body has been ravaged by time and disease, the patient in that hospital bed has enormous dignity and worth. They are a magnificent moral, spiritual creature of gender made in the image of God, and they have an eternal future. Now, I think your question was more pastoral uh, than than the answer I've given so far, so to help me answer it in a pastoral way, uh, let me quote one verse from 2 Timothy. Uh, Paul's writing this. He's in a Roman dungeon, just days from his own death. And he says in chapter 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. In the Old Testament, when someone brought a burnt offering, you know, a lamb or a goat, uh, to be sacrificed on the altar, they would complete the ceremony by pouring out a libation or a drink offering to God. If you like, it was, it was like the finishing touch of their sacrifice. Now, maybe it wasn't a terribly impressive moment in comparison to the earlier sacrifice, but it represented one final act of devotion to God. And that is how Paul sees his own death. Maybe somebody listening to me now in years to come will feel the first stab of fear that dementia lies up ahead. They may well be afraid of what the future will hold. But be like Paul and say in your heart to God, Lord, I am going to use this thing, this apparently inglorious and humiliating thing, to express my devotion to you. I'm going to use it as an offering, the final touch in my life for you. Help me to die well, Lord. Even when my old body starts to break down, even when my mind atrophies and becomes confused, help me to treat these days as a final drink offering to you. So now it's the first half of the verse, the first half of Paul's view of death. But then he goes on to say, the time of my departure has come. I can feel another ridiculous analogy coming on. Getting through the security of an airport is a hassle. It's undignified having to take your shoes off and belts off and so forth. But once inside a departure lounge, people tend to be happy. Why? Because they're going somewhere. As Paul says elsewhere, what is sown is, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So the apostle is giving us the uniquely Christian perspective on old age and death. The humiliations and constraints we all face in our final years, well, they're just like the hassle of going through airport security. But soon we will depart, and in the new earth, my elderly brother or sister, you will run on supple feet. Your mind will be clear as crystal. So it seems to me that euthanasia is the refuge of them who have no hope. But for those of us who know that the time of our departure draws near, we can choose to finish well, to offer up our final days, even if they are debilitating and difficult. We can offer them up to God as a drink offering. So, particularly thinking about 
um, kind of the younger Christians listening to this, like, would you say there anything we should be doing? There's, is there is there anything we should be doing in kind of response to this bill? Should we be writing to our local MP, or what? What would you say the response should be? Having conversations about these things, how would you be encouraging us to react? Well, I think the first thing to do is to get your theology straight. I think that is absolutely crucial. You have to be able to stare these really difficult cases, you know, the the MND cases, in the face, and know why you believe what you believe. Uh, so get your theology straight. Understand the Christian view of personhood. That's that's the, the, the most important thing to do. I mean, as far as uh, euthanasia itself is concerned, I mean, there are some good Christian resources around. There's a, uh, a fine organization called Living and Dying Well. It's run by Dame Laura Finley, and she's supported by Robert Preston. They have a website. You just Google Living and Dying Well. There's some good stuff on that. Um the Association of Palliative Medicine uh, is not a Christian website, but it has some good material on it. And then there's a Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, EPC, uh, which has some um, horror stories on it, which you know helps understand the situation. I mean, the the main thing I would say is we need to be able to articulate in a loving and caring way why we believe euthanasia to be wrong. And to be able to do it in a way that makes sense to somebody who instinctively will just want to draw a line in the sand and, and act out of sympathy in a specific case. We need to show and be able to prove how lines in the sand always destroy, end up destroying society. I mean, it's precisely the same argument with abortion, obviously. Um, you start off with the really difficult, heart-rending cases mm. and you end up with over one billion unborn children being killed. Um, so, the... the Get your theology right, and then work on how you can articulate the uh, Christian worldview uh, in a way that is loving and sympathetic. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Jim. I'm going to put a link on our website to those resources you mentioned, um, but it's been a really good and a really important conversation. Um, If you guys, our listeners, have any questions off the back of this episode, please don't hesitate to get in touch. We'd love to uh, respond to those. That's all from us until our final episode next week.